0: We'll be in First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Before we come to our, our text, our Scripture text this morning, I want to ask you, when you think about culture, what is the Christian's role in place in culture? Do we assimilate into culture? Do we just kind of agree and become part of the culture that we are in? do we fight against culture? Do we seek to come up against it and fight with all that we have to to change it or to bring it down? Do we retreat from culture? Do we retreat into like a fortress type of mentality? Or do we seek to transform culture? Richard Niebuhr, in his influential book, Christ and Culture, several uh, decades ago, categorized the tendencies that Christians can take toward their surrounding society and culture; those that I just mentioned, and he showed that those in the Reformed tradition emerging from the thoughts and teachings of John Calvin, like us, fall into the Christ transforms culture category. We neither flee nor avoid the world. We believe we should critique the culture, engage the culture, and even make culture. We take some pride in affirming Richard Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's phrase that Christ transforms culture. Those in our tradition rightly stress the lordship of Christ over all of life, right? As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch of the entire cosmos where the reigning Christ does not say, mine. Fallen as our culture is, we prefer to critique it rather than condemn it. We prefer to engage it and to transform if we can, rather than flee from it or accommodate ourselves to it. And yet, I affirm all those things as your pastor this morning. And yet, we cannot fully approve the triumphalistic sounding motto, Christ Transforms culture without qualification. We need to make sure we understand what these qualifications are because without them, those in our tradition and others can often begin to believe that Christ transforms culture by any means necessary. We can become so focused on the transformation that we can do and say things in the name of Jesus that Jesus would never have said or done. or even maybe worse are only his prerogative to say and do. And this morning Peter helps us understand what those qualifications are to how we as the people of God live in exile as those called to bring transformation in the name and power of Jesus. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are strained like sheep, but have now returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, your word given to us through the inspiration of your spirit. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, that Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that we would be not merely transformed by your word, but conformed to it. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're well into our series on 1 Peter that we've titled Exiles. And last week we saw that as we grow into our salvation, we are being built into a spiritual living building. Peter explains how Jesus is the cornerstone of this building. We are confronted with the question, are we built on the cornerstone that is Jesus or do we trip over it? We saw in our text that because Jesus is the cornerstone, we are His presence and His priests in the world. His presence, an actual living temple, and His priests, His representatives among the world. This morning, as Christ's presence and priests in the world, Peter gives instruction on how this temple presence and our priestly calling are to be lived out in exile. He once again returns to the understanding that we are sojourners and exiles the exile is a long-term resident someone not born where he lives yet they have lived in their new land for a long period of time where the sojourner by contrast is often thought of as a temporary resident a traveler whose stay is shorter but both of these terms that peter uses uh suggests that the believers belong elsewhere. And when Peter calls disciples sojourners and exiles, he means that we are never fully at home in the kingdom of this world. Strangers have no permanent residence. Aliens rarely hold positions of power and privilege. And regardless, Peter says, we must live honorable or literally beautiful lives among the pagans among the gentiles to shape a beautiful life we must know how to live as those who are free so peter reminds us of our status as believers and then moves to our conduct in the world a way of life that is consistent with our identity and follows our convictions because we are christ's presence and priests believers experience at least in some form or fashion a partial alienation from the, our culture and society. And whatever that culture and society may be, whether it's Abraham, when he said he was an alien and stranger in Canaan, even though Canaan was the promised land that God had given to him and his descendants, he still felt of himself as an alien and stranger. Peter says that the people that he's writing to and to us are are aliens because they literally live among the nations. And this is a bit of an amazing statement if you think about it because Peter is writing to people who were from the nations where they're living. (laughs) right? He calls them er early in in his letter to the exiles of the dispersion. And then he names where these people live. These are the places where they have likely grown up. (laughs) He is calling these people aliens and sojourners, even as they grew up fully immersed in the Gentile life, in the life of the culture that they grew up in until they came to faith in Jesus. And when they trusted in Jesus, they now belong, Peter says, to a new nation, one without borders, one determined by neither race nor nationality. Believers are no longer part of the nations. We are God's people, a holy nation. We must ask ourselves, is our fundamental identity as God's people? Is our fundamental identity as God's holy nation, as His holy nation? priesthood. Peter said that this is our fundamental identity. And if, we, if it's not, we are giving ourselves over to the passions of the flesh. We are not living as God's people because we are of the world. We are called to live in the world, but not of the world. And this is what Peter will help us understand more fully this morning. Our main point is that because Jesus has made us his people, we can live as his people in exile. First by fighting and then by living beautifully. First by fighting, verse 11. Now you might be confused. You'd be like, wait a second. Fighting? How is this our first point? How, I thought you said earlier that uh, we are not to take up the mantle of Christ transforms culture through any means necessary. Sounds like, by saying fighting, you might, be think, you might be saying that we need to fight for the culture. And you're right. We aren't to fight our culture. We aren't to take up arms. We aren't to do whatever it takes. We aren't to war against the society and culture in which we live. Many Christians have gotten that wrong over the years. Look what Peter says that we are to fight against. Look what Peter says that we are to fight, what we are to war against. He says we are to war against the passions of the flesh. Right? We are not to war against what's out there, which, don't get me wrong, I live in the same society and culture that you do. It's so easy to want to war against what's out there, but that's not what Peter says. We are to war against what's in here. You see, the passions as is translated could be translated as lust, which it often is, and so we typically connect this with sexual temptations, passions of the flesh, which Peter may well have in mind. But it's not limited to sexual lust. It's broadly used in the New Testament for any kind of lust, to strongly desire what belongs to others. Coveting, right, from the Ten Commandments. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus uses the term when explaining the parable of the sower, when the seeds fall among the thorns. He says, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires or passions for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus is connecting these passions with worldly cares. And definitions of success. You see, these passions can literally be anything that we seek to give us comfort, hope, peace, power, money, etc., that's not found in Jesus. So it's not the culture, not society, not the people out there that we must fight or wage war against, but it's what's within ourselves that we must fight. We must fight all the passions that can rule over us, that can lead us to do whatever it takes to make sure that our culture is transformed. It's the passion, it helps, we have to wage war against those passions that, that believes the end and not the means is what matters. And Peter says it's a very dangerous way for the believer to live if we are not waging war against those passions. This has borne itself out over the centuries. You can think of all the ways where Christians have used whatever means necessary to bring about the goodness of Christian society. I've heard a pastor, you know, use the Holy Roman Empire as as an illustration. Right, the Holy Roman Empire... When the empire fell, it was a Christian empire. It wasn't the pagan Roman empire that fell. It was the Christian empire that fell because it was so twisted. It so twisted, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it so twisted what a Christian society and culture could be. But see, in reality, what we have, what Christians have sought to do is merely a veneer. It hasn't penetrated the hearts and minds and souls of the people or the society in which they build and the culture in which they form. So we are to fight not what's out there but what's in here. And if we fight these passions inside us instead of fighting those out there, Peter says that we live a beautiful life among the Gentiles. And whether they glorify God now or speak against us as evildoers, right? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, When you live this beautiful life, Peter says, they may in the moment glorify God for how you live. But even if they speak evil against you, even if they speak against you as evildoers, they ultimately will give glory to God because of this beautiful life when Jesus comes again. And then he unpacks what this beautiful life looks like, and we see what living beautifully, or living honorably, as our text says, what that looks like in verses 12 through 25. Now, if you remember what I read, this beautiful life is kind of strange, Right this beautiful life that Peter begins to t- talk about is that we are to be subject or to submit ourselves If you're like me that doesn't sound really beautiful Wait I have to be subject to someone else I have to submit my own desires and wills to someone else? See, this, this whole section that we are about ready to, to dive into as what living beautifully looks like is in direct contrast to the attitude of the world. Right, the world says that you have all this freedom and that's what you want and you can do whatever you want and you fulfill all your passions and desires to however you want to fulfill them. But instead, Peter says, our freedom is found in Christ in serving God. And we're also called to serve our fellow Christians and to render proper service to the people of the world. In this section, Peter describes our freedom and service to God, to the church and to the world living beautifully as exiles, as sojourners. Peter does not argue that we should submit before others because we submit before God. He actually does the opposite. He stresses a privileged position that we have in which God has exalted us in Christ Jesus. We have been brought near to God as priests, as saints, as sons and daughters. We are God's own possession. We are beloved of the Lord. And he says, because of who you are, because of this exalted position. Right, it's like Paul to the Philippians in in chapter 2 talking about how Christ did not count equality with God to be something to be grasped, but poured out himself. Peter is using the same kind of imagery, that we have all this identity and glory of being God's holy people, of being his priests, of being his sons and daughters, of being his possession that he laid down his life for that we are beloved. And because of that, we are able to humble ourselves. We are able to submit ourselves to others. For the Lord's sake, Peter says, we are ready to submit ourselves to others. Ed Clowney, who was a pastor and missiologist and professor at Westminster Seminary says we submit ourselves to the world for the world's sake so that our good deeds may be a witness to them for a testimony against or a testimony against them we submit ourselves to our fellow christians we submit ourselves to fellow christians out of sacrificial love for them we submit ourselves for God's sake because we honor His image in our fellow creatures and because we respect His ordering of our lives, but especially because we gratefully seek to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. In the code of duties that follows, Peter describes Christian living in terms of submission submission to one another as Christians and even to unbelievers. You see, instead of seeing the culture transformed through power, might, or whatever-it-takes mentality, we have to trust. We have to trust the king who brings his kingdom in his own way, right? And he will bring his kingdom in power and might and glory. We know that, That is what is to come, and that is what we can look forward to with hope. But right now, the way he brings his kingdom is through the humble, submissive service that he himself showed and that he calls his church to do. The way that the king brings his kingdom is by the way of the cross. Jesus came not to destroy people, but to save them. And to accomplish that, he had to defeat the great oppressor, Satan. He had to redeem sinners from the guilt of sin. One commentator said, his hands did not grasp a sword, but were stretched out to be pierced with nails. He did not lift a spear, but received the thrust of the spear in his side. He did not come to bring the judgment, but to bear it for us. Peter calls us for the Lord's sake that our obedience serves God's purpose. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And I don't have to tell you that the emperor that Peter was talking about was no one that any Christian was a friend of. And then Peter speaks directly to the household servant, helping them understand how to serve in such a way that brings glory to God, right? He, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so he gives specific instruction to the, to the ser household servants who are part of the early church to understand how to live out their calling in that place. But Peter does not just address the servants. He is using the servants as an illustration for all of us. Peter wants us to understand this household servant submission as an illustration to how every Christian is to live as an example for all of us to follow for all believers. If we bear the evil patiently, we have broken the chain of bondage and the power of the Lord. We show we have confidence in God's justice We show that our service is not readily forced or voluntary. We are willing to serve for the Lord's sake, even honor those who don't deserve honor for the Lord's sake. Brothers and sisters, this is how a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this is how God's people transform the culture. It's not with power and might but with humble service it is a beautiful life that proclaims the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. It is upside down. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. (laughs) It sounds ridiculous in our day and age. And yet, over and over in Scripture, not just in 1 Peter, do we see this as the call of the body of Christ, of God's people? And Peter doesn't just leave us with do better, try harder. He leaves us with this. He says, for to this you have been called. This beautiful life of submission and service is to what you have been called. You have been called because Christ was called to do this for you. Who also suffered, Peter says, for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, you are called to this as Jesus was called to save you and me from our sin knowing that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, we can take up our cross to follow him. Yes, he is our example, a pattern to follow. Peter, actually, this word is like, is, 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 reflects a, a pattern to be traced. Do you remember when you were a little a kid and you would use a, a pattern under a piece of paper and you would, you would trace it and draw it, and then you would show and be like, look at what I drew. <laughs> look how beautiful it is. Look how well I did. Because as a little kid, you thought you drew that. (laughs) You traced the pattern and had something beautiful in return. Peter says Jesus is the pattern. And your life is traced over Jesus's. And when it's traced over Jesus, it is beautiful. And it's not merely a pattern to follow. He is far more than our example, Peter says. He is the one who bore our sins. The one who has freed us from our sin, from our oppressor Satan, and our evil foe Death. It is as a holy priesthood, a people of service, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, submitting to those outside the church for the sake of the Lord, to fight against the passions of flesh, and to live this beautiful life of service and submission that not only can, but will transform the world. And even in that reality, Peter reminds us, it is not for the transformation in and of itself. It is ultimately that those who are in darkness, who are outside the kingdom, might be brought in. It's never for our own good, even as we might reap the benefits but for the good and the salvation of others. Because Jesus made us his people, we can live as his people in exile by fighting and by living beautifully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, our savior Jesus, who has made us your people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live beautiful lives, even as we are in exile. Lord, help us to fight the passions of the flesh who would so easily desire to do things a different way. Lord, give us the grace and the mercy. Give us the reminder of our true identity as your holy people, as your beloved, that we might submit and serve in your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.